Hello, and welcome to the Brutally Honest Books podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gerrand, and I'll be giving you my honest thoughts on the books I read. While the reviews will be short and to the point, they'll include everything you want to know without any spoilers to help you figure out what you should read next. So with that said, let's jump right in. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Autobiography April. If you've been following along on Instagram or listening to the last couple of episodes that we've had, then you will already know that this is the monthly theme. But if you are just joining us, then welcome. As you can see from the title of this episode, it is going to be Alan Rickman's Diaries that were published post-mortem, and it covers the years between 1993 and 2015. And the reason it covers those years specifically is because 1993 is really right when he kind of maybe rose to fame or was a little bit more of a known name, if you will, attending, you know, red carpet events, bigger projects, things like that, all the way up to 2015, because he did pass away right in the beginning of 2016. And the book does include some diary entries between the years 1974 to 1982 at the end of the book. And personally, I thought it was actually a really nice touch to include it at the end. The reason they weren't included at the beginning of the book and sort of a part of all of the diary entries is because they are a little bit different in terms of their structure. These entries are a lot longer, more poetic, more insightful. I'll get into how those are different in a second from the rest of the diary entry, but it's also, you know, different structure. It's also before he really kind of rose to fame or a household name. And it's just a really different phase of his life. And the entries were much more sporadic. But once it was 1993, the entries became very, very regular all the way up until his passing in 2016. But another thing that this book does have is a foreword by Emma Thompson. And that was so emotional and so moving. The foreword is only like two pages long, but I was so blown away by the emotional impact she was able to impart in just those two short pages. But then back to the structure. So you have this foreword by Emma Thompson, and then you have the diary entries between 1993 to 2015, and then you have the afterword. And like I mentioned, I don't remember which one comes first, but there are the diary entries from 74 to 82 as well as an afterword that's written by his long-term partner and then wife, Rima Horton. So now that we have the structure of the book down and kind of the bones of it, now we can kind of jump into the context. So in the opening flap of the book, you can actually see an image of the diary page like printed. It's meant to be, you know, kind of artistic, but you get to see the pages printed. And something he did was just really doodle like crazy all in these books. And it's really cool to see, you know, there's like colored pencil or highlighter and all these different drawings and things like that. So this is a very unique type of diary. And that is a good segue into my next point, which is the use of the word diary. So if you could not tell by my accent, I am American, whereas Alan Rickman is British. So the term diary is a little bit different as to how I would interpret it. So for Americans, the term diary is going to denote something more along the lines of, you know, 
Dear diary, today this happened, today this happened, and this is how I feel about it, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the British term diary is how we would use the term calendar. And that's important for managing your expectations for this book, because I expected this book to be, dear diary, today, blah, 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 right? But like I said, it's more of a calendar. So you open the book and you immediately have all of these dates. The entries are pretty short for every single date. So you might have like, you know, January 1st, whatever, you know, go to grocery store, pick up chicken, you know, pick up ingredients for dinner tonight, meet with so-and-so, lunch meeting with so-and-so. So there's a lot of appointments, a lot of errands, a lot of these things that you would put into a calendar. So at first, I was very disheartened when I started reading this book. And I was really bummed out because I am a very, very, very big Alan Rickman fan. And it was just kind of a bummer to have such mismanaged expectations, which is nobody's fault. This is just, you know, one of those things that happens. But it was a bummer. And especially because it starts in 1993, which was the year that I was born. So some of the people he's mentioning are, you know, playwrights and authors and people like that who... I have no idea who they are. Like, I'm just going to be honest. It was a lot of names who I had no clue who they were. And it's also because not only was the year 1993, the year that I was born, but he was also very, very active in the world of theater. So it's a lot of people that I'm just not going to know who it is. Whereas I am going to pick up on, you know, more mainstream Hollywood names. And I do just want to add that even though a lot of it is these entries, which is, you know, lunch meeting with so-and-so, do this thing, pick up this thing, a lot of those things. At times, he does add in, you know, certain observations on life or on people or on films and has, you know, occasionally like a couple sentences that were, you know, more profound or more observational, more moving, things like that. Those are included as well. It's just not the bulk of the content. But because these still are private diary entries, whether it's a diary or a calendar, doesn't matter since they are private diary entries. So something that was very interesting for me was his brutally honest opinions on people and films and everything else. Because again, this was not intended for anybody else's eyes other than his own. So he is pretty scathing, but honest about, you know, his thoughts on people and films and things like that. So you know, some of the entries were um, Pulp Fiction. And again, this is like as these things came out. So it was very cool to see in a kind of time capsule kind of way. So for example, one of his comments on Pulp Fiction was brilliant, but empty. It was like watching, you know, uh, an amazing comic book or something like that. He's like, you know, it's really well done, but there's an emptiness to it. Um, He hated Forrest Gump. That was one that shocked me. He was like, this is terrible. And I think the reason he thought that because he felt that, and I do disagree with him, but he felt that any poignancy that the film had was kind of undercut by the humor. And he felt like they just didn't want to fully commit. Um, Personally, I think it's a yin-yang situation. I think it really balances it out. And it's one of those films that you laugh and you cry and it They wanted you to feel all of those emotions. I would stand by it. I stand by Forrest Gump. But he, you know, disagreed and disagreed vehemently. But like I said, he also had opinions on people. And that's a post that I'm going to do on Instagram. It's all of these different celebrities and all of his different opinions on them. I'm pretty sure everything that I'm going to be posting is all positive. (laughs) Granted, you know, he didn't have the most 
positive things to say about every single person, but I don't want like bad vibes to be posted on the gram. So it's all positive. But you know, he had all of these opinions on people, movies, etc. But like I mentioned, there is a time capsule element to all of this because it's as these things are happening, as these movies are coming out, as he's meeting these people for the first time, as they are becoming famous. You know, there's like a young Ian McGregor that he has dinner with. Um, He talks about his first time meeting Kate Winslet and his impression of her and then getting to know her through the years. That was very interesting to see. And one of the things that was very impactful, I found, was Princess Diana's death. So that's something that I will just kind of talk about a little bit on the podcast. I did jot down some of his entries, so I can just read those here if you are interested. He describes it as the unnameable, prevailing, still slow sadness, and about how there were friends of his who came to breakfast, and they tell me that Princess Diana is dead. For a second or two, I thought it was a word game or a strange joke. No, here on the terrace, glittering in the sun, and clearly one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think he was in Italy, the news is brutal and true. And then another entry reads, the newspapers are thick with it, pictures of Diana crowd the pages, flowers carpet the streets, it is true, a light has gone out, a legend begins. And then the third entry on her death reads, we settled down to watch Diana's funeral, from about 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., we hardly spoke. It is not just hindsight which suggests we were watching something extraordinary. The images compelled real focus as they happened. The single toll of the bell every time, the absolute involvement of the people across sex, age, and color made me watch it in such a highly concentrated way. Remember this. By the time Charles Spencer spoke, we were watching history shift and stir and the future may have reshaped itself. So as you can see, sometimes there were certain sections of the diary or certain passages that were more longer, more narrative. Also the same thing when it comes to Liam Neeson's wife passing away, that was just as heartbreaking, just as tragic, and obviously just as much of a shock. And you're reading this being recounted in real time. So as I mentioned, I didn't know a lot of the names in the 90s, and as we moved onward, However, there were some names that you obviously do know. Like I mentioned, Ian McGregor, Kate Winslet, Emma Thompson, Liam Neeson. It was just this really big group of friends. All of them were actors. Helen Mirren is a part of this group. And they're all just this really big friend group. They'd have dinner parties. And I would honestly just die for the same type of friend group, the same dynamics. So obviously when he's hanging out with these people, I did recognize the names. The name recognition though does increase a lot as it increases in the years. So as he becomes a little bit more of a Hollywood figure and he starts, you know, interacting with more names that are more recognizable to me, the book became increasingly more interesting. And the reason I mention that is twofold. One, if you are like me and you are interested in this book, just so you know, to kind of hang in there just until it gets into like, you know, the mid 2000s, a little bit further on. But also, too, if you are somebody who you are British, you are interested in British theater culture, you maybe know more names, things like that, you will naturally find that much more interesting right from the get-go. And then obviously, the elephant in the room is all of the Harry Potter content. I will say, I don't think it's... I will say that I don't think that there's as much Harry Potter content as most people think or expect from this book, just because... 
His role is relatively small compared to Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint. And I want to say he would only shoot like six to eight weeks out of the year. That being said, there are some very interesting observations on Harry Potter. He speaks very highly of Chris Columbus, the director of the first Harry Potter or the first two Harry Potter movies. And he does talk about kind of butting heads with some of the later directors, some of the later producers, and just some of his issues, essentially. Actually, one of them, I'll tell you this story. I think this was really interesting. And this is actually where the director potentially could have fumbled the bag so hard, if not for Alan Rickman. So once it got to the boathouse scene in movie six, obviously that is the movie where, spoiler alert, Snape dies. And if you remember the movie, the way that he dies is because Voldemort sets his snake Nagini on him. Nagini attacks Snape, you know, biting him, biting him a bunch of times. He passes away. But as he's slowly passing away, not quite dead yet, Harry, Ron, and Hermione rush into the boathouse and they're able to gather some of his tears to then see his memories. So the way that the director wanted to do it was to kill him with the curse of Kedavra. And Alan Rickman rightfully got heated about it and even complained to his wife about it, about how that makes no fucking sense because if he's killed with that curse, then he's not still alive for like a couple minutes longer for them to gather his tears. He would be dead instantly, as has been established in canon, right? And so he really put his foot down. He really, you know, stood up for that part of the plot. And thank God Alan Rickman really made him aware of how stupid that would be because otherwise we could have ended up with a major loophole and you know a bit of a flop but that's something that i think this story kind of highlights which i picked up on the book is how strong-willed this man was and that's something that i do really really respect and you know as you can probably pick up on how brutally honest he was obviously i'm a very big fan of that and i think also at the end of the day what an actor's actor he was. He truly, truly, truly cared about his craft more than a lot of people. And I think that that can come off as pretentious. And that was kind of what my impression was at the start of the book. But by the end, I was just understanding that, no, that this is just somebody that ultimately really, really cares about what he does and cares about it as a craft and an art form. And it's not only a craft and an art form in itself, but one that he's dedicated his life to. And obviously that is something that is very well known now amongst a lot of people, but that was part of his struggle with the Harry Potter franchise just because his character is so, I don't know if I would say stock or empty or just flat throughout most of the films for so long. It's just very cliche. There's no depth to him. It's just this one note character basically. But as we know, the thing that really kept him hanging on for so long was because of the intense emotional depth that we learn again in movie six, again, spoiler alert, that he has been in love with Lily all this time. And then his feelings for Harry make so much sense in how conflicted he's been and how ultimately everything he's done has been the greatest act of love. And he talks about that in his diary entry about how that was just the one element to the plot and to the story that just kept him hanging on the entire time and how thrilled he eventually was to be able to express all of those emotions that that character had after years and years and years. 
So with all of that said, I think we covered all the bases. I talked about the structure of the book, what I liked about the book, what I expected the book to be, which it was not that, and you know what it ultimately ended up being, my takeaways, etc., etc. So I think I can safely rate this book. And I do struggle with this just because of the diary structure of it and a little bit of the mismanaged expectations, which again is nobody's fault. It just is what it is. But I would say maybe three and a half out of five. And again, I want to re-clarify what three stars means because people might hear that and think that that's low or ooh, three and a half stars. But again, when I do three stars, three stars is a really good, solid read. It's solid, it's dependable, it's reliable, but it is middle of the road. Again, once we get into four stars, it's like something I would potentially buy as a gift for somebody, maybe go out of my way to recommend to somebody. Five stars is just perfection, creme de la creme of writing, of storytelling, etc. And so therefore, I do think that this would potentially be a three and a half. It is a little bit above the three, just because you do have these really moving passages when it comes to Princess Diana's death or Natasha Richardson's death. You're getting to read all this in real time. It's his personal thoughts, his personal feelings. It's very intimate. You also get the foreword by Emma Thompson and the afterword by his wife, which were so moving and lovely to read. They both made me choke up. But at the end of the day, it is just diary entries that are published and there's not so much of a narrative telling. So that's why I'm not just bumping it up to like four or five. Some people might rate this a four or five, in which case I can absolutely see a case being made. If you're somebody that, you know, is a big Alan Rickman stan and you'd want to buy this for them, they'd love it, you know, give it four or five. You're somebody who wants to give it a five because you, now you know what to expect. And this is something you would love to have on your shelf. I can absolutely see a case being made for that as a rating. Which leads me into my next point, which who I think this is good for. And I would say this is obviously good for Alan Rickman fans. I think this is also good for anybody who is wanting to become an actor themselves. I think it gives you a really unique insight into one of our greatest actors, as well as how this industry works, what his thoughts and opinions were. I think you'll find it a fun read. And I think if you're somebody who's just interested in actors in general, you kind of like that gossipy, insighty element to things. You might get a kick out of it. But I think on that note, I'm going to end the episode here. Be sure to stay tuned for next week's episode, which is the last episode for April. It is our last autobiography and it is a good one. I will tell you right now that this is actually going to be a five-star rating from me. I have nothing but good things to say. So if you're interested, be sure to stay tuned. In the meantime, you can rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That is the biggest way to support the show. You can also follow along on Instagram at Brutally Honest Books, as well as on TikTok at Brutally Honest Books. And with that, I will talk to you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Brutally Honest Books podcast. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. If you like the show, you can rate and review on iTunes, and be sure to follow along on Instagram at Brutally Honest Books.